We intend to uh, evict from the house. We intend to evacuate from the house. We intend to seize control of the house. This is the voice of Wilson Good, the first black mayor of Philadelphia, speaking at a press conference at City Hall on May 13, 1985. The subject the MOVE organization currently occupying a row house on Osage Avenue in the West Philadelphia residential neighborhood of Cobbs Creek. The police had told them to evacuate their houses. This is not being done for for nothing. It's a very serious situation. 250 families are being evacuated so that police can serve four arrest warrants for MOVE members on charges ranging from parole violations to terroristic threats made by MOVE in writing and on a bullhorn affixed to their exterior of their row house against neighbors and city officials. Enough was enough. We had waited a whole year and watched them build this stupid bunker up there, you know? I mean, dragging logs and trees all apart up the street to fortify this place, and nobody done anything. With the police right there, 24 hours a day, watching everything that goes on. Is it a confrontation? It most certainly is a confrontation, one strategized by Giant Africa years and years and years ago. There's been talk that there are explosives in this house. Uh, Is there any truth to that? That's only people's, uh, you know, hallucination because they have not been inside this house, so they would not know what is in this house. What is in this house is the strategy of John Africa that is very explosive. Ramona Africa was one of four people named today in an arrest warrant charging them with terroristic threats, possessing an explosive criminal conspiracy, riot, disorderly conduct, plus harassment. Police begin taking up positions on Osage Avenue and Pine Street at 3 a.m. on Monday, May 13th. Over a thousand cops in the area. I mean, there's all kinds of police cars, uh, stakeout. About 5.50 this morning, the shooting started. You hear the fire, Steve? I mean, they're, they're really going at it now. It's, uh, it's automatic weapons. Uh, it's, uh, at this point, the people are starting to scatter at this, uh, this side. I don't think that we are in any real danger on our side, but uh, there's no way of telling at this point. People are starting to panic. Uh, they're starting to run. A policeman taking a, a, an armed position. The sporadic fire lasted for about an hour and 20 minutes. However, when the first official word came down, there were still no reports of injury. Philadelphia citizens and residents just over the river in New Jersey have been watching the move situation being covered for the last few weeks, but now we're watching it unfold live. The Gilbride family was no exception. That day, that was May 13th confrontation on the TV all day. This is Alicia Gilbride, younger sister of John Gilbride. At the time, she's in fifth grade. And I remember bits and pieces of it, mainly because I had a, actually had a field trip and it was canceled because we couldn't go down to Philly. It impacted everybody. This is Jack Gilbride. Changes all our views of what was going on in Philadelphia with MOVE. It was an all-day affair ending in the bombing. I've just been advised that we have new videotape of uh, the episode that apparently ended, we think ended, the uh, MOVE situation tonight. The dropping of an incendiary device. And let's take a careful look at this. 5.27 p.m. State police helicopter drops it. There is the explosion. As you can see, a very dramatic explosion that occurs 30 seconds. A Pennsylvania State Police helicopter has just dropped a satchel of explosives, hoping to take out the two bunkers Move had built on their narrow rooftop. The satchel misses the bunkers, hits the roof. You're telling me that the homes on the other side of Osage Avenue may be on fire? That's correct. There's white smoke coming from several uh, roofs of the homes on the other side of Osage. 
A fire that began inside a MOVE headquarters quickly spread to adjoining row homes. The police commissioner decides to let the fire burn as a tactical maneuver in trying to force MOVE adults to surrender. One MOVE adult does emerge, 30-year-old Ramona Johnson, the MOVE member you heard earlier. Is it a confrontation? It most certainly is a confrontation, one strategized by Giant Africa years and years and years ago. There's been talk that there are explosives in this house. Uh, Is there any truth to that? That's only people's, uh, you know, hallucination because they have not been inside this house, so they would not know what is in this house. What is in this house is the strategy of Giant Africa that is very explosive. Ramona Johnson is arrested without incident. Then Philadelphia stakeout officers notice someone else has come out of the building. A boy, a boy who looks to be around nine years old. In MOVE, his name is Bertie Africa, and he's actually 13 years old. The fire has gotten out of control with firefighters unable to extinguish the 50-foot flames engulfing the entire block. And you're afraid that your house may be on I'm fire? I'm sure. Now. It's just destroyed, and it's just not fair. We've been there over 20 years, and we didn't have to have to go through this. You got innocent people that live around there on Osage Avenue, and they, they're just, you know, I mean, their properties is just going up in smoke. 6221 Osage Avenue, the row home owned by Louise James, but occupied by her brother Vincent Leapart, the leader of MOVE and his followers, has burned to the ground along with 60 other row homes on Osage Avenue and Pine Street. Six adult MOVE members and five children never come out of the burning 6221 Osage Avenue row home. This is the largest and most destructive and deadly fire in Philadelphia's history. This human tragedy becomes the political hot potato in Philadelphia and the lead local news story for weeks and months to come. Across the river in Delran, New Jersey, the Gilbride family is following along, and 11-year-old Alicia notices that her 17-year-old brother John is not just interested in the move bombing story, but seems a bit obsessed. But he really got interested in it, trying to learn as much as he could after that confrontation. This is the moment when John Gilbride, an average suburban middle-class kid, goes down the path to becoming a MOVE member. The first sign is from the back of his 1986 Delran, New Jersey high school yearbook, a post-graduation ceremony inscription from his best friend, Frank. Well, John, it sure as hell's been interesting this year. We did a lot and said a lot, and you made Delran a more bearable place to spend my last year of high school. I know you'll never forget all the great discussions at school, the wild adventures with Sean, and all these crazy Saturdays here at Sears. Don't forget all our early morning talks about MOVE and what jerks our teachers were and all the times trying to get into the library, usually to get away from Sean's farts. Don't ever change and never stop being a radical Republican. I hope we never square off against each other for president, but if we do, let the best man win. With much friendship and hope for the future, Frank Davenport. Sadly, Frank passed away from ALS a few years ago, but Sean, who's mentioned spoke to us about John in the last episode, last name Gilbride. He would share things with Frank that he wouldn't share with me just because, you know, I'd have been like, what the, what are you doing, man? Come on. He never told you anything about move. No, not, no. But then Sean calls me back that same afternoon. I just got off the phone with someone that you're going to want to talk to. Oh, really? Yeah. This is when I first learned of Jennifer, Frank Davenport's younger sister. Uh, Frank and Jen were always really close. I called Jen to ask her, I'm like, you know, did Frank ever say anything, you know, about John? Or And apparently, as she stated, she was there when John broke. 
This is Jennifer sharing this story for the very first time. He was at our house when the move bombing happened, and we lived on the other side of Delran from where he was, and we were near the Delaware, so we could actually see the smoke from our front steps. And I remember standing there watching the smoke rise with John, standing there with me and my brother, and he was a very naive and really good person, and we were much sort of edgier, snarkier kind of family. And I, I remember watching his face when he was seeing this, because my brother and I had lived in Philadelphia when we were little, and we, we actually knew who Move were from uh, having friends that lived near them when they lived near the neighborhood is near the Philly Zoo. And our parents had told us to, to stick, steer clear of their house when we were walking around our friend's neighborhood. So we weren't as surprised either by that MOVE was involved in the bombing or that the city would do that. We were much more, I guess the worldly would be a good word. But John was shattered seeing that happen. He just couldn't imagine that the police that you're supposed to go to if you're in trouble and help you would do something like that. So he started really quickly after the bombing. He went to arraignment court. 17-year-old John Gilbride goes into Philadelphia to attend the criminal arraignment of Ramona Johnson, the only adult MOVE member to exit before the fire engulfed 6221 Osage Avenue, and then two entire blocks. Like all MOVE members, Ramona chooses to represent herself in court. Her defense? MOVE law. MOVE teachings. The press and the courtroom gallery spectators are Ramona's audience, and potentially new MOVE members. This is MOVE strategy, because Ramona Johnson herself was recruited at age 23 into MOVE in 1979 while attending the trials of nine MOVE members charged with assault and murder of a police officer. MOVE members are trained, yes, trained, to put on a dramatic show in court. Young John Gilbride from the suburbs of New Jersey is taking it all in. He was going from... Jersey into Philadelphia all the time to go to these these court hearings, and there were a lot. Do you have a sense that he was skipping school? I would assume that he'd have had to skip school sometimes for that. John is excitedly sharing everything he sees, hears, and learns about MOVE with her, Frank, and her mom. He was pretty you know, easy for people to talk to, and he was curious, so he would have probably had lots of questions for people in the court and around the court. So we knew, he, we did know he was talking to people who were involved with, they were part of MOVE. Jennifer remembers being very worried about John's growing infatuation with MOVE. But remember that she herself, like John and Frank, is just a teenager. My brother and I were too young to realize the depth of what was going to happen. But my brother did know that, that this wasn't a good situation for John. Did your parents consider reaching out to John's parents? No, my, it was just my mom and she wouldn't have done that. She was kind of a counterculture sort of person herself. She was the kind of parent who was really excited when other people, when our friends were like, oh, you're so much cooler than our parents. The, the adult in our life who saw the whole thing didn't pick up on that she should have maybe done something. John's parents, Jack and Francine, watch and read the news daily. So they are abreast of the identification of remains found in the move house and Ramona Johnson's criminal trial, but they have no clue that their only son, John, has entered the web of move at just 17 years old. We had all spent a lot of time trying to talk him out of feeling like 
move was right and the government was wrong because there was more nuance there that he didn't see. In his mind, somebody had to be right and somebody had to be wrong. And it was pretty obvious that the city was wrong because that was just straight up horrific murder. April 1986, Ramona Johnson is convicted on charges of terroristic threats and sentenced to one and a half to seven years in prison. Six weeks later, John Gilbride and his twin sister Kathy and John's friends graduate from Delran High School. John is headed to Temple University in the heart of his favorite city, Philadelphia, which is also the home base of the MOVE organization. It is typical that high school friends can start to drift apart slowly at this time. John is shutting the door on his friendships completely. I've had one cell phone number since cell phones came out. I was like one of those guys, you could always get in touch with me. And John, basically, you know, he cut me off. John is simply just ghosting his longtime best friend, Sean. But with Frank, who is aware of John's involvement with MOVE, he needs to explain his radio silence and his future plans. John had come to see him to tell him that he was doing something that my brother wouldn't approve of. And I think that was the point when he joined them. He wouldn't give Frank specifics because he knew that Frank would be really upset that he was sorry. He didn't want my brother to try to talk him out of it. He didn't want to tell him what it was. And he, you know, he probably wouldn't hear from him anytime soon. And then I, I don't know if they had any more contact after that. Secrecy and disconnection from family and friends is typical of abusive relationships, which is the dynamic of every cult and specifically of the move cult. The only non-move relationship John is maintaining at this time is the one with his family and they still don't know about MOVE. So with certain MOVE activities like visiting the prisons, John is using his studies at Temple University as a cover story. He was telling me that, that uh, he had to do, he had to visit a prison to just get the flavor for it or whatever, an understanding of what's going on and for his classwork. John's lies and cover story get blown in the fall of 1988 when his mother and sister are cleaning out the basement. My wife, and my daughters found these letters that he had hidden away in our basement. And they, they were exploring all of it and telling, you know, what was going on here? Alicia is finally realizing that what she thought was a game of racing to the mailbox all those years was always about move. Okay, when the mail would come, he would always race me to the mailbox. Later on, many, many years later, once we moved here, we realized John was getting letters from them. Were you saying that John was writing to MOVE members in prison? Yeah. Without your parents' knowledge? They didn't know, no. How many letters are we talking about? I know that they were coming in frequently. At this time, there are at least 15 known MOVE members in prisons in Pennsylvania for charges ranging from murder to terroristic threats, weapons violations, and murder. Communicating with MOVE members on the outside and others sympathetic to their cause is a core strategy of MOVE. In reading over the dozens of letters in the basement, John's family can plainly see that John is being indoctrinated into MOVE belief and that he is being given orders by MOVE, known as activities, to do outside of prison for MOVE members. At this point, John is in college, and due to a job transfer, his father Jack has moved the family to Virginia. In order to figure out what's going on with their son, Jack and Francis drive up to meet John for lunch. When they bring up Move, John admits everything. Well, almost everything. Aware of Move's history, John and Francis immediately express their concerns. 
my biggest thing was I was nervous about he would be used by Numu and another confrontation. And he came back with, oh, I'll go out and right out there in the front of the mine and, uh, and I'll protest for them and whatever, whatever. And I said, you could get killed easily that way, John. You do, you do know that. And he said, yeah, but I, I'll do it. And that really scared me down deep, of course, to hear that come from him. But uh, yes, he was getting deeper and deeper. We went into panic mode and didn't know what to do. And there was this thing called Cult Awareness Network, headquartered in Chicago. We gave a call and they set us up to where a local branch was in our area. And we next day went there and they talked to us and, and showed us literature, gave us the ability to take home literature, some video cassette, so we could learn and get a foundation of what cult is, not move so much and uh, see what we were up against. You know, we're trying to do our best, but the one thing we didn't want to do is get him so mad at us he didn't want to see us again. That's always a problem you have, and that's what they're always trying to do for you, get you in that position. The cult are trying to do that, cult cult leaders trying to do that to the person and the parents or whoever they're attached with. Break that attachment and center it on themselves. In the fall of 1991, John announces to his family he's moving from New Jersey to West Philadelphia, and they find out it's the New Move headquarters, which prompts them to retain the services of cult interventionists. Uh, I think we might have first met them in New Jersey. This is Joseph Kelly, a longtime cult intervention counselor and himself a former cult member. They gave us the background of the situation, let us know that their son had changed radically, that he was now espousing revolutionary political, and that there was something really concerning and wrong. It was almost as if, you know, a switch went off, and there there went, went John, and he started to follow and adhere to this new philosophy, this new belief system. And it was so far removed from everything he'd been raised with. So you meet with the Gilbride family first. Right. You go through everything. We talk about uh, setting up the conditions that we would meet John. For the intervention to be successful, it needs to happen away from move. And John can't be aware of it ahead of time. It's not an ambush, but rather a coordinated conversation between two cult experts who had personal experience themselves in cults and John, who has yet to realize that he is in a cult. The plan is made. Invite John to come home to Virginia to his parents' new house for the weekend to celebrate his father Jack's birthday. John agrees to come home. We went over the ground rules. You know, if, if he decided he didn't want to talk, we wouldn't talk. We would do everything we can to let him know that we're not a threat to him, that at any point he wanted to take a break, we would take a break. John arrives John arrives and is told by his parents that two of his father's friends are coming over for lunch. When I met him, he was kind of, you know, suspicious, as most people would be. You know, I mean, he's a part of this revolutionary group that's against the system. I come in wearing my, you know, khakis and button-down shirt. And my colleague, who was about six foot four, <laughs> you know, he was uh, professorial and uh, he was a philosophy expert, but also very familiar with alternative beliefs. John at first was almost happy to talk with us. So we started having a discussion about politics, about movements, about what is fairer to do when you're in a group and what is not fair. Kind of like setting standards 
you know, if you're idealistic, you don't want to deviate from your idealism, yet you have to, you know, look at the goals. What are, what are your ultimate goals? And are you able to achieve them within the setting of this group? Or are they restraining you from looking at what might be considered the warts in the system, the difficulties, the inconsistencies? And so we started a banter, you know, and, uh, he was he was okay you know he was a little rigid his family was all there they they weren't participating in it it was really just me and my colleague and and john they were peripheral mom might have been getting things together for lunch his sisters were were maybe upstairs at one point during our discussion the word deprogramming came up it was on a videotape that my colleague had put on to the VHS. And at that point, John, his eyes got as big as saucers. He stood up quietly, just stood up. Almost, it almost looked like the Manchurian candidate where they put down the red queen of hearts. And that's the signal. Joe is referencing a scene in the 1962 film, The Manchurian Candidate. It was so profoundly unusual. He stood up, he looked at the exit. His, the sister was like, John, John, what's what's wrong? He ran out of the room. John is using the house phone upstairs to call move. Within minutes, he has packed his bag and is running down the steps toward the front door and his father, Jack. John was yelling, I don't know who they are or what they're trying to do, but I'm not staying here. I don't want to see any of you ever again. Get out of my life. Really loud and angry. And- Had you ever seen that side of John before? No. Bumps into me slightly runs out the front door and just runs away. And then Kathy and Alicia <laughs> run after him. Me and my sister got in the car and I was screaming like, you know, what are you doing? Come back, come back. And Francis and I get in the car to go searching also. And he ended up going into this wooded area down a path and we lost him. And that was the last we saw of him. Joe and his cult intervention colleague are still back at the Gilbride house in the living room. Whatever phobias had been induced in his training with the move had come full blown. I had heard later that he thought we were FBI or you know, some sinister uh, legal entity that was you know, trying to prevent him from working on becoming a better revolutionary, a better move member. All of the Gilbards are crying and so worried that they may have lost John to move forever. Thinking he has probably made his way to the airport to use his employee badge to hop a flight back to Philadelphia, the Gilbrides walk the terminals, but with no sign of him, decide to return home in hopes he will come back or at least call them. A little before nine in the next morning, I get a call and the person introduces himself as Alberta, Africa who I had never met, I had heard or really read more about her in newspaper articles and things, but I had never known her or ever talked with her. And she introduces herself and we talk and she tells me, oh, John's here with us and he's safe. And she explains how he got there, how he rented, uh, got a cab to Dulles Airport and from there rented a car and went home, what he they called home their house. And then she goes on and she's talking about how she wants to fix things up between John and his family and all this. And why don't you come up here and uh, we'll have a sit down or a meeting and uh, soothe things over. 
The Gilbrides had learned through the Cult Awareness Network to never lose contact with your loved one in the cult. Stay connected. No problem. I just said, yes, certainly. I'd be glad to do it. And and we all get ourselves together. And here we go up to 95 into Philadelphia. And we got there maybe about three in the afternoon, pulled up in front of the house. It looked nice to me. It looked for a center city home, University City area. So we knocked on the door and a teenage girl answers very polite, very nice, introduced ourselves, told who we were there, what we we're doing, and she sort of knew. And she said, come on in, and she took us in. And real quickly, we went off into a side room. The girl said, Alberta will be with you in a little moment. Alberta comes in, introduces herself again. We'd go with a little pleasantry, I guess you would say, conversation. And then she sits down. She's at a big desk that this was her office, she explained. And that she had some work to do and excuse her. And then she rifled through the paperwork. That maybe went on for about 10 or more minutes, a long time. We're just sitting there, nothing to do but stare. And uh, finally, she says, oh, I'm sorry, but I had to get that done and all this. And, but she says, what I wanted to do is sue this thing over between John and his family. So I'm glad you're here. And then she goes in and tells us all this stuff. And then she starts walking through everybody one at a time, nearly, uh, talking about who we were in relationship, I guess you would say. Frances, the mother most important one. Uh, she says, oh, you're the clean one. You wouldn't need everything perfect. Alicia was the baby of the house and the spoiled one. And me, she did get to me, and she says, you're the indifferent one. You don't care about the, the, the home. You're more interested in your work than anything. Something to that effect. And finally got to Kathy, uh, you're the black sheep of the family, always doing wrong or something. And then Francis said, no, she's not. And they discussed that issue a little bit and went on and on and on. And then, well, why are you concerned about us? I told her about that. I was alarmed about the confrontations they had with police and the using of John as a shield, and she assured me he could never be part uh, a MOVE member, that he didn't have them. I, I interpreted it to mean the mental fortitude for it or something to that effect, strength. Alberta Africa then brings up M1, the secret underground part of MOVE, that she says will deal with any kind of threat to MOVE. It was like a mind game between us. I wasn't going to do anything that started a confrontation threatened or get threatened or whatever. I just let her do her thing. Finally, after, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes or so, she calls John in or he just walks in all of a sudden. John has no expression on his face and says nothing to his family. He just stands next to Alberta. And the conversation continues in which he's talking nicely. Her tone has gotten nice and soft, and but she continues talking about how, you know, the family is here, John, be nice and all this. Why don't you take John and the family and have go have dinner, soothe things over? And believe it or not, I asked her, I invited, would you like to go to dinner with us? And she said, no, she was too busy with her work, her move work. 
she was very confident that she had control of John. And we went down and had dinner. And Jack, Francis, John's twin sister, Kathy, and younger sister, Alicia, all tell John over dinner how much they love him. And after that, we just came back and dropped them off. We didn't enter. We didn't go back in the house. We didn't talk to Alberta again. But we got back on the road, heading back towards Virginia. Um, we're talking. And I said, Cause we didn't meet the girlfriend, did we? The Gilbrides had heard that John had a move girlfriend. Uh, are you serious? Didn't you see the eye contact between the two of them and all that? And how they talked to each other and how John just let her proceed to talk, talk, talk. Dad, are you serious? Are you that naive? You didn't understand that, what was happening? 41-year-old Alberta Wicker, convicted felon with the inmate number of 6660, and a 20-year MOVE member and now leader of the MOVE cult, is the girlfriend of 21-year-old John Gilbride. We don't want Alberta to ever feel threatened by us. Because if we, that happens... We will lose John forever. And that's where I, we left that conversation and continued on to Virginia. John is now at the center of the MOVE web with Alberta, former mate of MOVE's founder, Vincent Lee Part, a.k.a. John Africa, the coordinator, reported to have been one of the 11 victims on May 13, 1985. Assuming the throne is the coordinator's wife, Alberta is not to be questioned, only obeyed. And she has grand plans to grow the move cult in numbers and financially. Her plan includes legally marrying John, which happened secretly in February 1992. And then having a child with John, which happens in 1996, a son named John Zachary Gilbride. John lovingly refers to his son as his little Irish boy. Alberta refers to him according to the supposed prophecy of her former mate, Vincent Leapart. John Zachary Gilbride is destined to become the future white leader of MOVE, making the cult global, like Scientology. John's relationship with both MOVE and Alberta will be over less than two years after his son is born. John's life will come to an end four years later, on September 26, 2002, in the parking spot in front of his apartment at Ryan's Run in Maple Shade. Now that you're there, can you picture somebody hiding? Across from the car, yes. The location of the apartment couldn't be better for what they wanted to do. That's next time on Murder at Ryan's Run. Post note, after John's failed cult intervention, he is never again allowed to travel back to see his family, unless accompanied by MOVE members. And on one visit, he gathers up all of the MOVE letters from prison and takes them back to MOVE. The only thing he leaves behind accidentally is the envelope of a letter from MOVE member Ramona Johnson from Muncie Prison, postmarked November 6, 1987. Be sure to check out the show notes of this episode to learn more about cultic influence, interventions, and a link to the scene from the Manchurian candidate mentioned by cult interventionist Joe Kelly. Be sure to follow be sure to follow the podcast and it would be much appreciated if you would rate, review and share. Follow us on social media for news, resources and bonus content. We love to hear from listeners, so please send any comments, questions or information about our ongoing investigations into the Move organization. We are murder at Ryan's run at gmail.com or message us on social media. Thanks for listening. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.